Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians and chapter 4. We're going to read just one verse together, Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Please pray once more with me. Oh God, as we come before your word, we pray again the words of that song. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. In these next few minutes, Lord, we pray that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us, for we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Ephesians 4 and verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, after a brief break of about a month or so, we return today to our study of the epistle to the Ephesians. And in many ways, it was good timing for us uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but not least because we had just concluded a major section of the book of Ephesians and now this morning embark on another major section. One of the more obvious ways in which commentators and theologians seek to divide the material in the epistle to the Ephesians or, or to break down the book is to see chapters 1 through 3 of the epistle as making up one major section and then the final three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, making up the second part of the book. Now, the, the first section, chapters 1 through 3, the material is largely didactic, it's theological, it's doctrinal, it's creedal, instructing Christians in what they should believe about God, about man, sin, Christ, salvation, and the church. The second section, chapters 4 through 6, uh, the material is largely practical and ethical, and it's about teaching Christians how they are to walk and how they are to live. We have been considering together the great theology contained in chapters 1 through 3. And you might be surprised to know that in chapters 1 through 3, there's actually only one verb that appears in the imperative form. There's only one command contained in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. You could comb those verses later and, and look for some commands, but there's only one contained in those first three chapters. It's actually found in chapter 2, verse 11. It's not a very um, uh, forceful ethical command. It simply tells the Gentiles to remember uh, their station outside of Christ before they were included into God's redemptive purposes. That's in Ephesians 2, 11, the only command that's contained in chapters 1 through 3. Now, the fact that there is only one command contained in those chapters does not mean that there is nothing of a practical nature to be found in these chapters. Uh, many places, I think, and, and we have done so, we can legitimately infer uh, practical directives and commandments and instructions from the Lord. But nonetheless, uh, that just illustrates that the material we've seen up to this point in chapters 1 through 3 is almost entirely theological or doctrinal material. 
Uh, so if you've been coming for several months and you've been very hungry for practical directives and practical instruction, we're going to get a lot of that over the next few months in chapters 4 through 6. But today, I really want to zero in on just one word. One word, and it's a transitional word found in verse 1 of Ephesians 4. It is the word, therefore. This morning we will not move much further past just this one word in Ephesians 4.1, therefore. With one word, I think Paul establishes the inseparable link that exists between theology and practice. Between what we believe and how we live. And it's this link that I wish to discuss this morning. And so I have only two points, two very simple points this morning, working from this word, therefore, in Ephesians 4.1. First of all, theology matters. Theology matters. What we believe matters. And then secondly, practice matters. Practice matters. How we walk, as Paul says in verse 1, matters. Very simple outline. Theology matters. What we believe matters. Practice matters. How we walk matters. So please look at me first at the first point. Theology matters. What we believe matters. Please look again at chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now look with me for a moment at this word, therefore. And you know what you're supposed to do, right? Whenever you see the word therefore in the scriptures, hopefully you're well-trained biblical interpreters. What do you do when you see the word therefore? You're supposed to ask what question? What is the therefore, therefore, right? What is that therefore doing there? The word therefore is a transitional word. It basically means based on previous material that's been conveyed, there are now implications for what I'm about to say. So Paul uses this word to to hearken back to things we've seen already and to point ahead to things we're either supposed to believe or to do. It's a transitional word. So let's ask, what is this therefore in Ephesians 4.1, therefore? Well, I contend that when Paul uses the word therefore in Ephesians 4.1, he does not have in mind merely the few verses that immediately precede this word. It's not like he's looking back to just four or five verses and all that stuff I said there. Now, I want to say something in light of that. I think that Paul has in mind all the material that we've seen up to this point in Ephesians 1 through 3. He's looking back at all that rich theological, doctrinal, uh, creedal material. And he's saying in light of all those truths and those rich themes, I now have instruction for you. So in effect, I understand Paul to be saying... In light of all that I've said in chapter 1 about, the, about God's redemptive purposes in Christ that originated before the foundations of the world, in light of all that I've said about the grand work of redemption, Ephesians 2, of taking men and women dead in sins and uniting them to Christ and raising them to newness of life together with Him, in light of all that I've said about the glories of the new humanity in the latter part of chapter 2, the church is the body of reconciled men and women made up of, of Jew and Gentile, formerly hostile to one another, but now stand united in Christ by His blood. In light of the redemptive historical shift that has taken place, such that Gentiles are now included in the redemptive work of God. And toward the end of chapter 3, in light of all I've said about the character and nature of God, who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Amen. To whom belongs all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. In light of all of this, you walk. In light of all that I've said, in light of all that is true, in light of this rich theology, may it inform the way you live. Paul understands that theology, truth, doctrine, urgently matters. What you believe matters. What you believe about God, about man, about sin about Christ, about salvation through Him, 
about the church, what you believe urgently matters, and make no mistake, it will influence the way you walk. What you believe will tell your feet where to go. And it will tell your hands what to do. And it will tell your heart what to love. Theology urgently matters. And it informs the way we walk. Paul recognized that theology informs practice. Theology informs the question, how shall we then live? Now, theology is not about just the dead assimilation of facts about God. That's not what I mean when I talk about theology. It's not about the the systematization of rote data about God. It's not about just the accumulation of facts about God. God, it is about the comprehension, the the sure experimental knowledge of the character, the nature, and ways of God by his word, and understanding what that means for men and women and how they ought to live. That's what theology is about. It's not just piling up a bunch of data and categorizing it and and putting it in a uh, nicely bound systematic theology. It's about comprehension of God, his nature and his ways, and his requirements for us as his people. Now, theologians of old, I think, recognize this. It's the old Puritan uh, William Ames, spelled Ames, A-M-E-S. William Ames, I think, got this. In his great work of systematic theology, known as the Marrow of Theology, published in the 1620s, he defines theology this way. He says, theology is the doctrine or teaching of living unto God. Theology is the doctrine or teaching of living unto God. Theology tells us how we're to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. How am I to, to dispense my responsibilities before the creator and sustainer of the universe? That's what theology tells us. It is the doctrine. It is the teaching of living unto God. See, theology and practice go hand in hand. Theology informs practice. We could say orthodoxy informs orthopraxy, right? Doctrine informs right living. The order is important. Theology first, practice second. Identity and then activity, knowledge and then practice. The indicative, what is true, what's been done. And then the imperative, what does God want us to do? Kevin Van Hooser, a modern theologian, offers a similar definition of theology when he says, living to God living into Christ, living through the Spirit with others, this is the essence of theology. Theology is urgently relevant, urgently practical. It tells us how we're to live. Now, I think that this point, brothers and sisters, is important for us here at Emmanuel Church. You know this, right? There are some in the church today who who just bemoan the study of theology. We announced we're having a systematic theology class. It's like, oh... What, can I just get seven easy how-to steps how to get through my day, you know? There are people like that in the church, right? And we hear these sorts of statements all the time. People say things like, you know, Pastor, why do we have to spend so much time on abstract theology? When are we going to get to the really practical stuff? They might say, you know, honestly, I'm not really a very theological person. I leave theology to the pastors and seminarians. I'm just about living the Christian life. Or maybe they say, really, I'm not that interested in theology. I've, I've never been a philosopher anyway. See, I'm, I'm, I'm just a practical person. Or sometimes you might hear these sorts of statements maybe in a more pious veil. They'll say things like, you know, all that talk about theology, it only, it only puffs up and divides. I'm about loving my neighbor. Sounds, sounds very spiritual. I'm about loving my neighbor. I don't, I'm not about being puffed up and division. That's all theology brings. I'm about loving my neighbor. Or perhaps they say, I'd, I'd rather give a cup of cold water to someone in the church or evangelize a lost person than read a theological tome by John Owen or John Calvin. Well, see, inherent in these sorts of statements 
is the assumption that theology and practice are mutually exclusive. That they don't inform one another. They're somehow at odds with one another. But this assumption is misgiven. Uh, I can only quote the words of the, the late great theologian Robert Raymond, one of my favorite quotes. He says, what, now, now, brother, that's just dumb. <laughs> Highly theological fellow, Dr. Dr. Raymond. See, the Bible provides us with theology. Why? To undergird our practice. To tell us how we're supposed to live. Why give a cup of cold water to someone in the church or evangelize a lost person or love your neighbor? Those very actions are a reflection of what you believe theologically to be true about God and about man and about the gospel and about the church. Theology tells us what we're to do and how we're to live. Remember Om's definition. It's the doctrine of living unto God. Theology is meant to command the hand and the foot and the eye and the tongue and the heart. It tells us where we're to go, what we're to do, what we're to say, what we're even to think, brothers and sisters. And it tells us that we're to love the true and living God. And Paul's method in the book of Ephesians is to tell them first all that is true about God, man, sin, and Christ. And his expectation is that this will inform them as to how they're to live. He understands that the theological indicatives, what's true in the gospel, what's true in creation, what's true in the church, instruct us in how to carry out the practical imperatives. There are no indi- if there are no indicatives, the imperatives become unintelligible. Now let me just show you one or two ways in how Paul does this in the book of Ephesians. Hopefully many of you know Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you first the indicative and then show you how he works this out in the imperative later on in the book. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you don't need to turn there, but I'll just summarize those verses for you. Here we have the theology, the indicative, the doctrine. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul explains first of all the doctrine of sin. He argues that men and women who are outside of Christ have a sin nature and are fundamentally dead in their trespasses and sins. Then he explains the doctrine of salvation, that God raised these dead sinners and made them alive through union with Christ and seated them with Him in the heavenly places. And then he explains the doctrine of Christian ethics. He explains that God created these men and women new in Christ so that they would walk in good works which God prepared before Him. Now that's the theology. That's the doctrine. That's the indicative. Now what about the imperative? What about the practical? Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Now because all that theology is true, because you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, because God has looked on you in mercy and kindness and united you to Christ and raised you up together with Him, so walk, right? Let's see how Paul opens this up in 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. How how did they learn Christ? The way it was taught to them in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. That's where they got their Christology. You're not dead in sin anymore. You've been united to Christ and raised alive together with Him and seated with Him in heavenly places. So how can you now walk in futility of your mind and in sin and in greed and in sensuality and impurity? That is not the way you learn Christ, Paul says. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Or we could say as the doctrine is in Jesus. 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Remember when you were dead in your trespasses and sins? Put that stuff off. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on to tell them a number of very practical imperatives that tell them how to live from day to day. He says, verse 25, don't lie. Verse 26, don't live in anger. Verse 28, don't steal. Verse 29, don't engage in vulgar speech. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, don't live in bitterness, wrath, and anger. And then positively, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven you. Why all these imperatives? Where do they come from? Well, see, they're rooted in the indicatives, in the theology, in the doctrine of chapters 1 through 3. And that's the maneuver Paul makes in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, in light of these truths, live. Don't lie. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Let him who stole steal no longer. Don't engage in vulgar speech, but speak the truth in love to one another. Don't be filled with bitterness and anger and malice, but be tender-hearted and kind, forgiving one another in Christ. I was going to give another example in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. For time's sake, I'll just gloss over that. But in those verses, we have the theology, right? The doctrine. Paul talks about the church and how glorious it is as the new humanity in this body of Jews and Gentiles formerly alienated to one another. But Christ in his flesh destroyed the division and united them together as one and, and made them a new body, a new household, a new temple. And then he goes to the practical. What does he say of a practical nature about the church in the latter part of Ephesians 4-6? through six? Well, He says 4-3, you ought to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. 4-15, you're to speak the truth in love. 432, you're to be kind and tender-hearted towards your neighbor. 5-2, you're to walk in love. That's the practical. Because of all this that's true about the church, you need to walk in love towards your brother and towards your sister. See, when we understand ecclesiology, that is what the church is, we then learn our place in the church and what we're supposed to be doing in the church. I mean, you could, you could, you know, uh, play this out ad infinitum. Think, think of Ephesians 5, right? The great marriage passage. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, see if, when, when Paul is instructing husbands, he doesn't say, well, I've written a lovely new pamphlet on 12 steps for how to win a mate. He says, no, you need a crash course in Christology. You need a crash course in ecclesiology. You need to understand a little bit more about Jesus and about his church. And that's how you'll learn how to love a wife well. You women trying to learn how to submit to your husband and what that looks like and what that means, you need to know something about the way the church submits to Christ. Doctrine tells us how to live. If we know the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, we'll know how to live appropriately in our marriages. We don't need more marriage conferences and more little pamphlets with seven steps about how to get marriage right. We need to know Christ. We need to know his word we need to appreciate how truth informs the way we dwell with one another, even in our marriages and in our families. See, what I'm saying is there's no place for the attitude that says, I just want the practical, leave out the high-flung theology. I don't need that. I just, I just need the steps. Just give me the steps. Listen, when I hear somebody say that, I conclude one of two things. Either you're not truly born again, or you just don't know what you're talking about. Theology is the study of God. It's about knowing Him and His Word. It is the doctrine or teaching of living unto God. You say you're a Christian, and that doesn't thrill your heart. 
And that, that's not something you're passionate about. How to live rightly before the face of God unto Him. That's what theology is for. And to the extent that anyone has pioneered some different definition, they're mistaken. Theology tells us how to live according to the truth as it is in Jesus. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about theologizing. Okay? That's a little bit different sort of thing. Okay? I'm not talking about overly enthusiastic young punks with beards sitting around drinking beer, talking about how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. Now, I'm a punk with a beard. I get that. I don't, don't really drink beer. But I'm not talking about that sort of theologizing about you know, vague, ambiguous things that are not settled in Scripture and just having debates for the sake of having debates. I'm talking about knowing the true and living God. Knowing His Word. Seeking to comprehend His character and His ways and His plans for His people and His designs for how His church is to live and to walk in a crooked and perverse generation. Theology urgently matters. Sermons that merely market seven easy how-to steps for living your best life now can maybe help you on some shallow psychological level, but they will never change your heart. Seven easy how-to steps cannot capture or compel your soul. But a sight of the true and living God and the glory of all His attributes, that will win your affection. That will win your devotion. That will compel your soul. And that will teach your hand as members presented to God what to do, how to walk, how to live. The sort of sermons that truly teach you how to live and how to die and how to make it to glory are sermons that are dug down deep in the rich soil of robust scriptural theology and tells us what is true about the living God and what is true about sinful man and what is true about the Lord Jesus Christ and what is true about free salvation by grace through faith in Him. Listen, you know the sorts of sermons I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's six steps for how to just live your best life now or make it through your day, that sort of stuff. Listen, that doesn't put missionaries in the midst of unreached people groups. That doesn't equip people for how to be martyrs. That doesn't generate and engender in people the spirit of the Apostle Paul we saw a moment ago in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could he say that? Because he knew certain things about God. He knew certain things about his word. He knew certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he could sit in a prison and he could rejoice in the Lord. And he could construe his life and think of his life with reference to life or death or martyrdom. Knowing what it meant to serve the Lord and to be his child and to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Theology urgently matters. And may we here at Emmanuel Church ever be lovers of theology. May we be people that love doctrine, not for doctrine's sake, but so that we might know how to live unto God. May we treasure orthodoxy. May we treasure doctrine and the truth as it is in Jesus. May we ground our lives and our days and our families in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Well, may God help us to seal these things on our hearts. We're to love theology because theology matters. Now secondly, and more briefly... Notice with me that practice matters. Theology matters. What we believe matters. Secondly, practice matters. How we walk matters. I'll ask you to look again, please, at Ephesians 4 and verse 1 where we see this language of walking. Paul says, I therefore, in light of the fact that theology matters, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
Paul does not conclude the book with chapter 3. He could have, but didn't stop with the theological or doctrinal material in chapter 3. Paul, here in verse 1 of chapter 4, sets out to answer the question in light of all that we've seen in these chapters, how shall we then live? Urgently relevant question, right? We need to know, brothers and sisters, how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to walk in the world. How are we supposed to live in light of the truth of God's word? The answer, verse 1, is that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Because of all that is true about God and about Christ and about you and about the church, walk in a manner worthy, Paul says. This verse shows that far from being at odds with each other, theology and practice are meant to dwell in harmony. The two are utterly inseparable. Remember, theology is the doctrine of living unto God. If you reduce theology to the mere accumulation of rote facts about God that have no bearing on how we live, you've missed theology altogether. That's no theology I want to know or be a part of. Theology is meant to tell us how to walk and how to live. It tells my hand what to do. It tells my feet where to go. It tells my heart what to love. With this one simple word, therefore, this verse tells us that theology is is meant to inform how we live and that how we live matters to God. Theology matters and practice matters. Listen, Christ is earnestly interested in how you live this week. He is earnestly interested in what you do once you wake up Monday morning. And this verse also, I think, indicts all sort of heady, speculative theologizing that does not produce practical vital godliness. Listen, we have a handful of seminarians in this church. Guys interested in the ministry. We have some armchair theologians, guys who read a lot, women who read a lot, and they're interested in theological debates. And listen, I commend that. I think that's great. But if it's not the sort of thing that is engendering a spirit that loves the Lord and loves His Word and leads to practical, vital godliness and informs us how we're to love our neighbor and how we're to give glasses of cold water to those in need, well, then it's useless. It is to no avail. And I think this verse indicts that sort of theologizing. And I think this might sting for some of us. Some of us love theologizing. Maybe we haven't given a glass of cold water since 1998. But man, we know about debates surrounding supra and infralapsarianism. And we know this or that nuanced view of the atonement. And man, we got the millennium all figured out. I may not know my neighbor's first name. But man, I could, I could tell you what my body of divinity says. I'm up to date on all the debates surrounding the impassibility of God and His divine emotivity. I don't even know my neighbor. I haven't given a glass of cold water in many years. Listen, that sort of posture, that sort of attitude is damnable in God's eyes. And that's not a stretch. That's based on the foundation of God's Word. Christ is not pleased with the accumulation of facts, of knowledge, of data about God that does not produce practical, vital godliness. Christians who love God and the world and their neighbors and know how it is to serve within the church and to wash people's feet. That sort of theologizing is useless. Friends, do not forget the words of 1 Corinthians 13.2. We love 1 Corinthians 13, right? Well, let's let it wash over us now. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, what does it say? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what does it say? I am nothing. I think they should read that at every convocation seminary service in the country. What are you going to seminary for? You want to grow in your knowledge about God and the Bible, right? 
But if you have not love, Paul says you're nothing. He doesn't say you have half. He says you have nothing. You are nothing. If you don't love, even if you possess all knowledge, even if you speak prophetically, you are nothing according to Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. You might have memorized Ephesians 1 through 3 forwards and back, but if you don't understand what Paul means when he says Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, you don't know anything about theology. According to 1 Corinthians 13, not only do you have nothing, you are nothing. If faith without works is dead, as James says, so is theology without practice. Listen, God will not be impressed on the day of judgment if you could stand before him and recite the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He's not going to be impressed if you've read all the pages of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. God is going to be earnestly interested in if you gave cups of cold water to those who are in need. He's going to say, did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the hungry? Did you serve my people? Did you love your neighbor? Well, no, but I have this really lovely pocket edition of the abstractive principles that I had printed up. Isn't it lovely? Aren't you glad I memorized this, Lord? No, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And who will inhabit heaven? It is those who understood this link between theology and practice. They knew and they believed the truth as it is in Jesus. And they lived unto God before his face in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Listen, how we walk urgently matters to Christ. He's interested that we live in obedience, that we put off the old self, and that we live unto God in a way that is well-pleasing to Him. You know, in this day and age, I, I sit in various meetings with peers, with good conferences, sit, sit around with church planners, guys who are in my phase of life, and you hear various cliches that are thrown out. I find them so, so interesting. I'd, I'd like to know where these cliches come from. Maybe they're spontaneous, or maybe there's something that someone read in a book somewhere. But you hear something like this, right? Um, the Christian life, okay, is about, not, it's not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. Ever heard something like that? Very popular for young preachers to say that. And it sounds very spiritual. It's an interesting play on words, right? But it's a pathetic load of nonsense according to the scriptures. And I'll just point you to Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Paul wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Christ is earnestly interested in behavior modification. Behavior modification in the hearts of God's people vindicates the gospel itself. We're to be a people, Titus 2.14, that are zealous for good works. And what does Jesus say in John 5 when he heals the paralytic? Go and sin no more. Don't you know what's happened to you? I've healed you. You've come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go and sin no more. I want your behavior to be modified, lest something more severe befall you. Listen, brothers and sisters, Christ is concerned how we live and how we walk and that we put off the old self and put on Christ. And by no means is that grounds for merit before Him. It's an evidence that we really are the children of God. One of my favorites. How about this one? Religion says do. Jesus says done. Again, a brilliant, clever play on words. Completely false according to the Bible. What does Jesus say in Luke 10, 28? Do this and you will live. He's always saying do and he's always saying don't. Those imperatives are grounded in the gospel itself. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. We're told how we're to live before God as a disciple, well-pleasing to him. And I want to emphasize, by no means as a way of earning and purchasing favor with God. Listen, you are safe in Christ on the merits of the Lord Jesus 
who has bought you by his blood, if you have believed on him in repentance and faith. And before the throne of grace, it will be his righteousness and his work of obedience on the cross that secures your ticket to heaven. That does not negate the fact that Christ is earnestly interested that his followers walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. I love the statement in Philippians 2 verse 15. I've already alluded to it once or twice in this service. What's the goal for Christian people? Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Oh, well, he's probably talking about when we're in heaven, right? Wrong. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I mean, I just want to turn the sanctification back on. There ought to be something strikingly different about the behavior of God's people and that of the world. Because the calling of God's people is to shine as lights in the world. We should pursue the posture that's blameless and innocent before the Lord, that walks with integrity, that's well-pleasing to Him, that's worthy of the theology that we believe, that's worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So theology matters. Secondly, practice matters. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to learn uh, what is meant, or what it means, excuse me, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. But now in closing, I'd like to share just a few brief applications for us this morning. Three points of application from what we've seen. Number one, we who are God's people should seek by God's help to nurture a spirit that loves theology, God's word, and the study of the truth. I'll say that again. We should seek, by God's help, to nurture a spirit that loves theology, God's word, and the study of the truth. We should seek to live lives that evidence a sincere desire to grow deeper and deeper in our knowledge of our living triune God because theology matters. Listen, we should lean in to these times before God's word. We should, we should gather around Bible studies. We should read good Christian books with, with rich theology. We should seek to grow in our knowledge of God and His ways and Christ and the Spirit and what God is doing in His church. Listen, listen, growing in our knowledge of the truth is by no means antithetical to being a Christian person. It's well-pleasing to God. And we who are God's people, if theology is the doctrine or teaching of living unto God, then that should be the passion of our souls. That should excite us. It was so encouraging to me. I, I met with folks from, from Northwest Baptist Church. That's the congregation that allows us to meet in this place. It has been so generous to us and really accommodating our every need. And I, I met with some of their folks this week. We had a joint service maybe a month or so ago to celebrate David and Eve's baptism. And as we all met upstairs in the sanctuary, and they commented, I was so proud of Emmanuel Church. They said, uh, uh, we were so pleased. Everybody sat toward the front. Everyone, you know, we, we have people scattered all over in the sanctuary. No back row Baptists in Emmanuel Church, okay? But your people all sat toward the front. Now listen, I hope that that reflects an eagerness to worship God and to sit before His Word. It's encouraging to me. People have their Bibles open. Some of you have it on your phone. and Some of you take notes. That's encouraging. That shows an eagerness. That reflects an eagerness to learn God's Word and to apply it to our hearts. It's been wonderful in the small group environments to discuss the sermons together and discuss God's Word together. Listen, we should have a hunger for God and His Word because theology matters. And we should recognize that the more we grow in our knowledge of the truth, God helping us, we'll grow as Christian people. 
Second point of application, again, for you Christians here. We should, by God's help, seek to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Because if theology matters, how we walk matters. Say that again. We should, by God's help, seek to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Because if theology matters, how we walk matters. A lot of people think that the Christian life is simply about believing the right things. That is not true. Partly true. It's a half-truth. What we believe matters. You need to believe the gospel. You need to believe God's word. But it matters how we live. Christ is interested in how you, my brother, my sister, my friend, Christ is interested in how you live this week. He's watching you. He wants to see you walk in holiness. He wants you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He wants you to be well-pleasing to him. And so I must ask you, brother or sister, how are you walking? Does your walk validate your theology? If you remember here, you've affirmed our statement of faith, which is called the Abstract of Principles. Glorious theology in that document. Does your life reflect that theology in a way that gives honor and glory to God? Are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Well, may God help us. And if you say, you know what? The way I've been living is a little bit unworthy of that calling. Go to Christ. Go to Him in the context of the Lord's Supper. Confess your sins. And say, Lord, revive me. Renew my zeal for your name and my zeal for good works that are well-pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so that I could boast in my works, but so that my works would give worth to Christ. They'd honor Him. They'd be well-pleasing to Him. Third and final point of application. This is to those here who are not Christians. If you'd say, I'm not a self-conscious follower of Christ. I don't really know that I believe all of this. I'm, I'm not a Christian. To those who are not Christians... I have something very important I'd like to say to you. To the degree that we, as those who profess to follow Christ, have not walked in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we're sorry. To the degree that you have seen hypocrisy in God's people, I'm sorry. That is not as it should be. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And if you've seen hypocrisy in God's people, I want to apologize to you. We apologize to you if you've seen that in our lives. Wonderful thing as I look out among God's people this morning, I know many here whose lives validate the theology that they believe, and I would encourage you to look at them. But to the degree that you've seen Christian hypocrites, I apologize. That's not how it should be. But I want you to know the theology is still true. The indicative, the message about Jesus Christ is still true. He was no hypocrite. And you know, the Bible never pretends that there are not hypocrites in the church. The Bible is very frank about that. There are hypocrites in God's church. There are Christians who don't behave as they ought. The Bible puts that on the table. The Bible tells us that. There are those who do not walk the way they ought to walk. Listen, the issue for you, my unconverted friend, It's not that you just look at the hypocrites, but that you look at Jesus. He was no hypocrite. Christians are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Christ walked in a manner becoming the Son of God. And He walked in a manner becoming a Savior. And you don't need to look and and talk about how Christians have not behaved the way they should. You need to look at Jesus and do something with Him. And then you can deal with all the hypocrites. 
Then you can decide what to do about those who have not obeyed Christ the way they should. But you need to look at Jesus. You need to run to Him. You need to do something with Him. And so I invite you, honestly, put away all the facade and all the excuses. Look at the Scriptures. Go to the Gospels and read about the Christ that you see there and do something with Him. But don't put your response to the Lord Jesus Christ on some Christian hypocrite that you've known. That will, listen, that will not play well at the bar of Christ. What are you going to do with Jesus? No man spoke like this. No man lived like this. Listen, you need to look at Him and you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace Him by faith. Repent of your sins and follow Him. And by God's help, you will do what so many in this place have already done. He will enable you and help you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's pray together. Our Father, many of us in this place are acutely aware of the ways in which we failed you. We're acutely aware of our sins. And all the times we've not walked in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus, that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so we come to you in these moments now, confessing our sins, repenting to you, and asking once again, on the foundation of your word, which we believe to be true, that you would be pleased to dispense to us fresh grace. The grace of forgiveness and the grace to help us in our fight against sin. Help each one of us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Help us to shine like lights in the world, to be innocent and blameless children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And may you cause there to be something in the lives of your people here that is in every way countercultural and attractive and compelling to those who wish to know what it is to follow Christ. And we pray for those in our midst today who don't know Him, that You would come, and that You would save them, that You would hold before their eyes now, even in this communion service, the risen Christ in all His glory, and in all His beauty as a Savior with arms spread wide, who offers Himself freely to men and women and boys and girls who do not know Him. May they come today to know salvation in Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we continue to sing. As we come in a few moments to partake of the elements, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.